Hi, just a quick note at the top of the episode and a reminder from last week that we were still having some technical difficulties on this episode, so Monica's audio track does not sound as crisp as we like it to. Uh, This does not affect uh, your ability to hear everything in the discussion. Uh, All, you know, everything she says is very clear. It's just not, uh, not quite the quality that we typically shoot for. Uh, We have since corrected this, though, uh, so won't be a problem in future episodes. Anyway, just wanted to let you know. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the show. And welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're continuing, or rather finishing, our romance theme month with the 1972 Andrei Tarkovsky film, Solaris. In the future, humanity has discovered a distant planet called Solaris. One of the first sent to fly over and investigate the planet, Henry Burton, returns, claiming to have seen the ocean of the planet form an elaborate garden and a four-meter-tall child. Flight footage contradicts his claim, and he is largely derided and ignored. Years later, the government is questioning whether the space station in Solaris's orbit should be decommissioned, as the scientific studies conducted there, dubbed Solaristics, have yielded little information. On top of this, three scientists stationed there have begun making odd claims similar to Burton's. Chris Kelvin, a psychologist, is recruited to go to the station and evaluate its condition. He spends his last day on Earth at his father's country house. Kelvin arrives at the space station and is spoken to cryptically by the scientists there, Snout and Sartorius. Snout reveals the third scientist, Jabarian, killed himself. Kelvin sees a tape of Jabarian, who also speaks cryptically, and insists he is not crazy. The next morning, Kelvin wakes to find Hari, his long-deceased wife, in bed with him. Confused and frightened, he tricks her into getting into a rocket and shoots her out into the abyss. Snout and Sartorius explain they have each had guests like Hari and believe that they have been created by the ocean on Solaris. The beings seem identical to humans, but are neutrino-based and can resurrect. That night, Hari reappears to Kelvin and he accepts her as his wife. Hari becomes more independent and human over time and eventually learns from Sartorius that the original Hari killed herself many years before. She's disturbed by this knowledge, but Kelvin comforts her. During an argument at a dinner party held for Snout, Sartorius tells Hari that she isn't real, greatly upsetting her. She attempts suicide by drinking liquid oxygen, but is painfully resurrected and distraught over her existence. Snout decides to shoot radiation encoded with Kelvin's brainwaves at Solaris, hoping to make it understand their distress at their guests and calm it down. Kelvin becomes very ill and has a fever dream of visiting his mother, who cleans wounds off his arm. When he wakes up, he's informed that Hari asked the other two to use the, quote, annihilator to destroy her. 
The guests have stopped appearing since Snout's brainwave experiment, and the surface of Solaris has begun forming islands. We cut to Kelvin at his father's country home, looking at his father through the window, and the two embrace. The camera pulls out, and it's revealed that Kelvin is on one of Solaris's islands. Monica, I kind of threw you in the deep end this week as far as art films are concerned. Uh, what did you think of this? So please don't feel bad about this. <laughs> Very good. And, and I don't really mean this as a judgment about the quality of the film itself. It just reflects my own tastes. But I hated it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have to admit I am disappointed but not surprised at your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm basic. That, that was bound to happen. <laughs> so I'm sure we will get into all of the ways uh, that you dislike this film. Um, <laughs> first off, though, I'd like to talk a little bit generally about some of the production uh, information as we want to do here. So first off, this is directed by Andre Tarkovsky, who, uh, in general, if you've taken a, you know, 101 film studies class, you've heard of him. This is one of the giants of cinema uh, historically. He's an incredibly highly renowned uh, director. So I think this film exhibits a lot of the traits he is well known for. So first off, he's very well known, very well known for taking for having very, very long takes, by which I mean he'll kind of keep the camera rolling without cutting for a very extended period of time. Um, also, his films typically have very, very deliberate pacing and kind of a dreamlike tone to them. So he is a Russian director who grew up in the USSR uh, and made almost all of his films there, um, except for, I believe, the, the final two films he made were outside of the USSR, and it, wasn't, it was only the last film he made called The Sacrifice in 1986, that was completely unaffiliated uh, with the Soviets. He, uh, I guess, as a result of him working within that system, the story of his career within the USSR is he typically got very big budgets. Um, so if I recall correctly, this film, I think, had a budget of uh, 3 million rubles, which was, uh, I, I suppose, very high for the time. Uh, I don't know exactly what that figure translates into now. The, the government... Certainly, and and Moss Film provided funding for him, but he he frequently fought with censors. And I th I think if you if you see this film, you can kind of understand why. I don't know how much of it was ideological, but I think kind of from the perspective of like the censors also having an eye towards like creating crowd pleasing films, uh, that was not really the direction that that his style went in. So I think it's not it's not really a surprise that we he would have uh, so much tension with the Soviet Union censors. A little bit more specifically about this film, he said in a um, documentary called Voyage in Time, he thought of Solaris as being kind of an artistic failure and that he would do a better job in his 1975 or 1979 film stalker and he believed this because he he in this film he was trying to transcend the science fiction genre as he saw it and he felt that he hadn't really accomplished that and then just another another 
tidbit about kind of the development of the film. Originally, the first two thirds of the film were supposed to take place on Earth before Kelvin leaves for Solaris. But Moss Film disagreed with that. Also, uh, Stanislaw Lem, who wrote the uh, the novel that this film is based on, really didn't didn't like that choice. So he relented. So now we get we get a picture that's I would say maybe the first third, maybe maybe the first forty five minutes take pl- place on Earth, and the rest of the film uh, take place on the space station. Oh, and I did uh, I did want to include while we're speaking specifically about Tarkovsky uh, there's a really great quote that I'm going to paraphrase when he was uh, showing his his 1979 film Stalker when he was showing it to the um, the censorship board in the USSR the board replied that like oh it needs essentially it needs to be more fast-paced more things need to happen and his response was no it needs to be more slow-paced and dull so like essentially only the right kind of people are left in the theater when it gets really good and that's that's just a quote i really love uh i love the audacity of that can can i ask a question about censorship it kind of seems like it's not even in these aspects, it's not about con, con, like people shouldn't see this, but more about like, can you make this movie more entertaining? Like, what does that have to do with censorship? I can't speak specifically for the Soviets or their censorship practices, but I think we do tend to see this even with groups that are not officially censorship. So I, I think I probably know the most about the MPAA, which is not which is not censorship. It's not state-imposed production companies have the option of submitting their films uh, to receive a rating. And it's entirely voluntary. It's up for debate how voluntary it actually is. Um, but kind of in that, we'll also, we'll also see that paradox of like things kind of not actually being about content, right? So for example, there was a, an interview with uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone who created South Park. And they were talking about their experience with MPAA with their first film called Orgasmo, which they had a lot of problems with because they would, in, in essence, submit a cut to the MPAA. The MPAA would say, that doesn't make an R rating. That would be NC-17. And when they would ask why, the MPAA would say, we don't, we're not a censorship board. We don't make it a policy of telling people what to cut. We just tell you what our rating is. And then they said in the 90s when they were making the South Park full-length film, they were working with a major studio. And so in that circumstance, the MPAA, when they submitted it, the MPAA got back to them with, you need to trim this scene, this piece of dialogue is unacceptable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I think perhaps the nature of boards like this is to kind of perhaps is overstating it, but go mad with power and kind of begin deciding that they they themselves are the filmmakers. And so with the MPAA, they can shove around independent filmmakers, but not major studios. And with the Soviet Union, like he wasn't going to release in the USSR and without their approval. So I think maybe that board had the opportunity to kind of voice their personal opinions about film. So you probably came across this in the Wikipedia article, but they mentioned how Tarkovsky and the censors kind of 
thought about, okay, allusions to God and Christianity, which, okay, that makes sense. But then also the censors wanted him to have a more realistic film with a clearer image of the future. And I didn't really know why that was something that they cared about. So I don't, I I guess, I, I don't know for sure. My guess from that was that this was kind of um and again this is this is my personal speculation right in if you if you know better I'd be very interested to find out about this a couple years before i believe 4 years before Stanley Kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey came out which is a landmark uh science fiction film and has kind of the opposite tact of this film where here Tarkovsky was arguing about like trying to create emotion and transcend science fiction. 2001 is very much about evolution, technology. Here are the new things that we can do with a film camera. We can show, you know, spaceships in space in this new way and they look really good, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if a degree of that wasn't a sense of competition with the West. Um, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. So to talk about the source material a little bit, as I had mentioned, the uh, the novel Solaris was uh, written by Stanislaw Lem, uh, and he collaborated with Tarkovsky on his adaptation. It's kind of hard to say specifically what the nature of the collaboration was. He's not listed as a screenwriter on the film, but I believe they, they collaborated on story elements. But he had a very strong disagreement with Tarkovsky's approach. And he, Lem, who died in 2006, actually lived long enough to see also the Steven Soderbergh remake of Solaris as well, which was um, kind of a more brief work, but in many ways is very sim- similar to this. And Lem was was displeased with kind of all of the adaptations of his novel and his big argument was that he was writing a novel that was about exploration, about science, about the idea of human beings coming coming into contact with an alien life form that they don't understand or know how to communicate with. Uh, and he even, um, again, I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but he said something to the effect of like, that's why I called it Solaris, not love in space. So he was really, he's been pretty displeased, I think, by kind of the, the, the general turn this property has taken over time. And then I guess as, as kind of a, a last little bit, I wanted to talk about um, the cinematographer on the film, Vadim Yusuf. So he had worked frequently with Tarkovsky up to this point on, I think, all of his full-length films not uh not including his student work at the university but like all of all of his feature films he worked with him on but the two apparently had such a tumultuous relationship on this set that they never they never worked together again so i thought that was that was kind of interesting in terms of this is a a film with such a singular kind of vision and visual style and i think it's always interesting to see something like that and understand it to have come out of of kind of such a considerable degree of strife. So I guess let's use that opportunity to talk a little bit about the visual design. So a couple of things I wanted to mention, I think this is a film that really kind of 
hits you over the head with the idea that like this, the screen is very important, right? What you're looking at is very, very important to this film. One of the big things is the color strategy. So there are several different shots in the film that wind up using different color palettes. So at the very beginning of the film, we start with kind of a full color spectrum, like shots of nature. And it's very, it's very rich and very lush And then pretty soon we begin moving into certain sequences that are black and white, certain sequences that are bluish, almost almost similar to some of the stuff we saw in Nosferatu or uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you heard those episodes. I don't I, I, I was wondering what I guess what you made of that kind of that element of the visual design, like the change in the kind of colors that they use. Right. Like, how did that strike you? Um, well, not knowing where this movie was going to go at the beginning, I kind of thought, wow, this feels very natural and earthy. And like the way the characters are dressed doesn't feel like it's set in the future because we do spend so much time on Earth at the beginning. Um, I, I was like, this doesn't even this just kind of feels like the 70s. Like, look at all this brown. Look at all this crochet. <laughs> um of course, that changes. You know, even when they're on the space station, the way they're dressed is not, like, don't they? They're wearing, like, suits and stuff. They're not wearing, they have, you can see, like, a space suit that they have kind of in a little uh, closet with a transparent door, but they, you never, I don't think you ever see them wearing it. But anyway, that's something that kind of struck me. Right, and kind of how deliberately, like, not space-aged it is. Mm-hmm, right? Like the space station, um, I mean, we do find out that they're failing at their mission, and it does come across as very um, kind of dilapidated. Yeah, which is um, which is also something that uh, Tarkovsky referenced, uh, that that was kind of his goal, again, to, to mention 2001 A Space Odyssey. In that film, we get, like, very pristine visions of, like, the, the super distant future and everything will be so kind of glamorous and sophisticated and, and sharp. Uh, and here it, it's interesting that the space station looks terrible in comparison with earth. Earth looks so much better. I was just going to mention that, um, one of the first transitions they kind of go through after they kind of leave the, the Russian countryside, I guess, is they, they have that kind of extended car scene. And I think I read that they filmed that in Tokyo even now, but of definitely then, Tokyo is like perceived as this very futuristic city, and that that part looked very kind of clean and more traditionally sci-fi. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That was actually that was one of my favorite sequences of the film. Towards the beginning, I didn't mention in the synopsis, but before Kelvin leaves uh, for Solaris, he meets briefly with Henry Burton, who. Um, was the, uh, I suppose, the, the first pilot to kind of have a close interaction with Solaris and made the claims about the four-meter-tall child. And Burton is trying to kind of warn Kelvin about, like, how serious the circumstances and really Im- impress upon him uh, how how odd and, like, alien Solaris is. When uh, Burton leaves, he, he gets in the car, and we have a really... Gosh, that sequence must must be like 10, 15 minutes long of him and his son who are sitting in this car that's just going through this like network of highways. Uh, And so we're seeing a lot of shots 
from the car. And that's, I think other moments in the film do it too, but that except for the final shot there uses that really strong, like blue hue. So in, in some ways it was going into that shot. I kind of felt like it was, it was weirdly depressing, but also like kind of similar to the, uh, I guess the nature around Kelvin's dad's house, right? Like, they're very different stylistically, but both are shot so methodically and the the cars kind of in some ways mimic like the stream, you know, seeing the water ripple in the creek. It was a pretty stark contrast. I think once, even though they had already been watching that, that video when they were at home of the space station, so you could see the kind of sci-fi element up there. When they transitioned to the freeway scene, that's a very obvious stark contrast and made me think, okay, now we're getting into the more obviously sci-fi portion of this movie. The interesting thing to me was that the initial part that's set in the countryside had kind of a lot of enough activity, you know, going on. There was the rain and, and they filmed different parts of the inside and the outside of the house and there were the kids running around. But as soon as you switch to the freeway scene, it's just like kind of monotony. Like I started, my, my, my mind started wandering during that part. Cause I was like, this is just like, this is just like being on a car trip. I guess, I guess no wonder the, the author didn't care for this film because in some ways it seems hostile to the idea of like technology and space exploration. Cause like you said, we have all this nature and it's wonderful and it's vibrant. And even though the shots are very long and there's not too, too much happening, it's very comforting. And then we go to the car scene and it's like on and off hostile slash kind of like you were saying like it's very like rhythmic your mind starts wandering they're not presenting you with that much new information anymore so i guess this uh, this obviously works in tandem with the visual design but one thing i i specifically wanted to talk about in this film was the editing this is going to be the kind of film where it's very hard to think about editing because it's it's such a non-presence. It's very easy for us to think about editing when we're talking about, say, a Mission Impossible film, Born Identity, what have you, uh, where we have a lot of very quick cuts because we're seeing a lot of the activity that we're talking about. Whereas here, the shot length is is just incredible, right? We sit with the same shots for an extremely long amount of time. To give uh, just a little bit of uh, background, a little bit of information that I pulled from a Wired article. So apparently as of 2014, the average shot length in American films was two and a half seconds long, right? And I think if you, if you watch something like Marvel... Uh, and you really pay attention to like how long in between cuts, you'll really realize that it's like we don't we don't stay on anything for very long at all. That is kind of the dominant feature of modern filmmaking is quick, quick, quick cutting. Tarkovsky's average shot length, I pulled this from an article by Christopher Malcolm in F-Stoppers. Throughout his career, his average shot length was 68 seconds. So we're going to get a very, very different experience watching something by Tarkovsky than we would watching modern things or even a lot of the films that we've done up till this point, right? Like a lot of the classic Hollywood films didn't have takes this long. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. One thing I found that was really interesting about Tarkovsky, and we've talked about this in in previous episodes of this podcast, 
was that a lot of directors uh, and very important cinematic figures talk about montage or editing as being the defining feature of film. So this is true of Kuleshov, Eisenstein, Orson Welles also said this. Um, Obviously, Walter Murch, uh, a lot of really prominent figures have said this. And Tarkovsky actually disagreed with it. He at one point said that he did not want to be kind of considered among the pantheon of of Soviet directors who found montage to be of utmost importance. And that's because he was very fixated on the idea of time pressure within shots. So what he found really interesting about the medium of film was the idea that a shot was an imprint of time. And so every every shot we're looking at kind of a a real like living thing that is going on. And so I think if we think about Solaris in these terms, we understand that like these these really long shots are really meant to be perhaps admired, but kind of but maybe more principally to be lived in. We are supposed to be living in this moment. This like he is presenting us with a chunk of time that we should inhabit. I I guess I'm I'm wondering what you thought of that like i guess it seems like that had more of the impact of of kind of just general boredom for you is that would would that be fair to say i don't know if the long takes were what contributed to the boredom because i actually i i don't i don't dislike that approach in so much of the stuff we say we see now there are so many super quick takes i just remember when I first started watching that Food Network show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, the takes in that are so frenetic. Um, and then on top of that, you have the energetic music and everything else. That, but when I first saw that show, I thought I was watching an ad for a show, you know, because, <laughs> because, because the ads always show, like, shorter clips than is in the actual show, and they're really fast-paced so that they can pack in all that advertisement into, like, 15 or 30 seconds. But then I found out, like, oh, no, this is the show. It's just, like, super, super fast-paced. And I, I don't mind that, but I think that there's something impressive about doing long takes where, you know, they... They're, they're not, you know, chopping up their movie the way you have to do with our podcast to, like, make me sound smart and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really love how you put that because I've had that exact same thought, right? That, like, wait, this isn't a commercial? Because we're so used to commercials being so fast-paced because, like, we got to, you know, buy in 30 seconds, right? Uh, and it's it's really bonkers that we, we have programming that appears that way now. You know, um, the... Was it the Great British Baking Show? Uh-huh. That's like a totally pleasant movie or a totally pleasant TV series. And I cannot stand it because I get so freaking bored. And yeah, I have to turn on Chopped and like, yeah, what's going to this guy spilled something and she cut herself. It's crazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but do they use do they use long, long takes in the baking show or uh, not? I mean, not outrageously long, but for sure longer than Chopped. The other one I thought of was, um, what was the name of the movie that came out recently about Queen? Bohemian or, Rhapsody, yeah. Bohemian, oh, okay, duh. Um, I know that that, got, that took a lot of flack for having so many short takes. Uh, you probably saw this video, too. I wish I could remember who did it, but there was a really great 
uh, like five minute YouTube video that uses a single scene from that movie to explain like why it's editing is a mess. Um, I think I watched that and they were like, how is this movie getting an Oscar or whatever? (laughs) Uh, Well, so not to derail us too much, but like, I do want to emphasize that like, it's not like the Oscars are decided by these elite, like super knowledgeable individuals who have like the best understanding of film editing and they'll shoot. It's decided by anyone who's a member of the Academy so it's, again, the the refrain of the industry patting itself on the back. That's why if it's a popular movie, it's going to win in a bunch of categories that don't, not to insult anyone in particular, but don't necessarily reflect quality of craftsmanship. Although we could have a whole argument about the merits of judging art to begin with. So you had mentioned that you don't necessarily mind long takes, but was it, I guess kind of in a nutshell was there was there an element of like the visual or editing design of this film that really kind of stuck in your craw i think okay so i wrote down all the reasons i hate this movie um and some of them (laughs) (laughs) some of them will fit into kind of what you're talking about and some of them have nothing to do with it but i'll just go through them and then we can kind of address them as we get to it but the reasons i don't like this movie are it's long okay it's sci-fi okay and there, i i don't like sci-fi there are many many exceptions but in general going in i don't like sci-fi it's 70s and the only good thing about the 70s and disco and this is is disco and this is way before disco um it's weird and almost everybody in the cast is ugly so there you go i appreciate how many of those things were unqualified <laughs> <laughs> It's weird, and no, I won't define it. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I think, I I know we've had conversations about this before, about how I don't like sci-fi, and one big reason is that most of the sci-fi I don't like, I don't like weird stuff. I I know that about you, and I hadn't predicted this being a problem, because is it just that it's, like, conceptually really uncomfortable? Well, he put his his wife in a rocket <laughs> launched her from the space station. Is that not weird to you? Uh, well, um, I mean, I think to be fair, I think like if I were to die and then my wife woke up one day and found me in bed, <laughs> I would expect her to shoot me out into space in a rocket because it's not right. <laughs> well, um, let me like qualify that a little bit more because one of the movies that we watched I guess it was last month, was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I think everybody would agree that that's a weird movie. But that's a kind of weird that I enjoy. Um, I don't really like sci-fi weird because I don't enjoy futuristic kind of stuff. It's just not something that movies like this one, movies like, what was that French film with Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich? Oh, The Fifth Element. Yeah, like I hate that stuff. I hate it. So, 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 but to relate to your particular question, I think like the long takes weren't really a problem for me, but they did. Like, one of the issues I had with the movies is that it's so long, but there were so many parts of it where I was like, this doesn't need to be this long. Um, and perhaps that's the director's intention. Like, I get that, but it doesn't. It doesn't make, I mean, it doesn't make an enjoyable watch for me. Like, why are we sitting in a car on a freeway for so long? Well, but like, let me, I guess let me interject there. I think that when you say, I, 
I want to push you on this a little bit. When you say it doesn't need to be this long, what do you mean? It it does okay. I understand that the, if the director's intention is to like weed out people so that only the people who like the movie will see it till the end, then perhaps it worked exactly as intended. But in terms of advancing the plot, it doesn't really work, you know. But well, so so a couple of things. First, I do love that Tarkovsky quote, but. I would venture a guess to say that he does not literally think that he wants to make quote unquote dull films. I think his idea would be that I am trying to build something. And if you can't kind of like this, it's not that I'm doing this just to weed you out, but this is a necessary part of what I'm building. And like, if you're not, if you can't partake in that, then like why, you know, kind of why sit around for the rest of it? And I mean, I, I think just to just to bring it back a a, a little bit, uh, I, I think the thing is I don't like I don't dislike those shots. Like I find them very I feel odd using using this word because I feel like it, it has baggage with it, but it feels very meditative. I think when I was watching this movie, I was not I was not in a super good place emotionally, and I was kind of shocked by how I, I don't want to use the word healing because I sound like a crunchy granola person, but kind of healing, right? Like the experience of it's all, it's almost like going to church. Everyone gets bored going to church, right? But you go and the boredom is part of it. You go because you're partaking in something you go because sometimes like your mind needs something that it doesn't want. Does that, I guess that would be my argument for the film. I, so, like I said, my own feelings about this film are not to say that it's bad. It's just that it it just doesn't jive with my tastes, I guess. I just have too short an attention span to, to appreciate something like this, along with all the other aspects that I don't normally care for in movies. Um, and if I want to be bored... I'd rather do it, you know, sitting on a park bench outside. First off, I understand that we're never going to come to an agreement on this, right? And, like, I appreciate that, like, your, you know, your opinion is your own, my opinion is my own. Um, And I don't think everyone has to like this movie. But I guess I kind of want to keep issuing defenses for it because I, I think I think something that gets to me a little bit about art film is a lot of times we talk about it like it's this very exclusive club and like you know quotes like the one from Tarkovsky don't necessarily help that but I I do think that it can be a very relatable thing if we understand to kind of use your your example of like why don't I just sit on a park bench and watch nature I think like my response would be that like well that's also great too but like also no one no one gave that to you no one made that for you that's not a form of communication right whereas like this is and so it's like that kind of meditative quality but also like you are you are receiving a piece of communication from someone else Uh, so first off, it occurred to me, I just want to uh, add on to one of my remarks earlier when I was talking about the idea of like boredom and like, 
going to church and that partially being, you know, being about the experience of being, being bored and being kind of deprived of, um, of, uh, I guess, sensory input and, you know, phones and everything. I just want to mention that that was not an original thought. That is something that Paul Schrader talked about when he was promoting his film First Reformed, uh, when he spoke with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. He talked about that. And also I want to recommend anyone who's a fan of um, Paul Schrader or film in general, that's a really wonderful interview. Um, and Terry Gross is obviously a really wonderful interviewer. Um, so I would highly recommend checking that out. So next up, I wanted to get a little bit into the thematic elements of this film. So we we talked about them a little bit in our conversation about kind of the visual design and the um, the editing choices. I wanted to to specifically talk about like what this movie says about space exploration and also kind of the idea of, of civilization. So as we had mentioned, so much of the film at the beginning is really dedicated to nature and then we're removed from it uh, for the rest of the runtime and we're entirely on the space station. Uh, and then we come back to it at the end, we revisit that nature, but it's it turns out that it's fabricated by the planet Solaris, right? It's it's a vision essentially specifically made for our protagonist. So I guess I'm wondering what kind of your thoughts on what this film said about it and kind of how does it speak to us now, especially that in, in some ways we're like more divorced from nature than we have been at, at kind of any time before in human history. So actually point of plot clarification. So they were never on earth like at that in that first segment that's all on Solaris? I believe it's supposed to be that he stayed and went to Solaris at the end that he went to one of the islands that were were formed. At the beginning they were they were on like actual earth as we know it. And then when he when he goes quote unquote back he's not going back to earth he's going to like a an illusion. Or, well, I guess, you know, if you want to call it an illusion, he's going to the place that Solaris created in reaction to his um, his brainwaves, to, to his communication to the planet. I guess because, in general, I dislike sci-fi as a genre, this doubly resonates with me. Because I think they present feelings of being on earth and being at the I actually saw this the 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 dacha is the name of that little house that they have where it's like in especially in european countries a lot of people have a a, a second like a summer house that the government provides so that they can uh, if they live in the city they can go over there and fish and farm and stuff like that in the film, we're made to feel like that comfort being in that area, and then we go out to the space station, and and the contrast makes us feel makes us feel that even deeper. So I guess that does because I already feel uncomfortable with sci-fi as a genre in general. Then that resonates with me more. Right. In some way, this being almost an anti science fiction film like Tarkovsky saying that he specifically wanted to transcend the the tropes and limitations of the genre because he felt that 
American science fiction films were so obsessed with the technology that they were kind of divorced from the, the human emotional element. And I think if you, so I, I'm not super familiar what the cultural currents would have been in the Soviet Union at the time, but um, in the U.S., at least by the early 70s, right, we'd come down from that kind of like the hopeful 50s and, uh, you know, like space race and all this kind of stuff and like looking into the future, of course, um, that all kind of like fell apart in the 60s. So by the 70s, I think there was... Um, and you can see it re- reflected in kind of the fashions of the time. There was an impulse to get back to nature anyway. So it's very, the ideas of this film are very in line with that. Was that part of the reason there are so many like earthy tones in, in 70s fashion? Well, like, it's hard to say because I don't ever want to say def- So you can see, obviously, people had this mindset. So when they went to the store, they were drawn to brown crochet. But it does strike you that that's kind of an element of that trend. Um, I actually did hear uh, a podcast recently where they were interviewing one of the last um, traditional felt hat makers in the world. And the podcast was, oh, Dress the History of Fashion. And um, the hat maker who they interviewed in that podcast mentioned how in the, in the late, I guess, late 60s, there was a resurgence in interest in handicrafts. So I think that could kind of align with this time frame. Um, it, it was, and it was kind of a reaction to, um, you know, the intense industrialization that had been going on for the last uh, hundred plus years. Right. Well, it's kind of, it's interesting too. And I don't know, I don't really know this history, but kind of seeing, um, I guess, cultural waves from the space race from the Soviet perspective, uh, especially bearing in mind that, uh, and this is this is an idea I'm, I'm stealing from Citations Needed, which is a podcast I've I've mentioned before. It's great, go listen to it. Um, but like as an American, as as most Americans are, I was kind of grew up thinking that like, oh yeah, well you know, America won the space race uh, without really analyzing that that much. But when we think about it, like the United States only succeeded in the space race insofar as it was the first to colonize the moon. It was the first to like place a flag on the moon and pretty much every other parameter, the Soviets were first, they were first to, to launch into orbit. They were the first to, to send a, a person into space. So I guess I, I I just wonder how, like, what would the trend, what would the perspective of uh, citizens of the USSR have been around all of this, and especially at this time? Um, something I wanted to mention is, like, well, okay, so how do you feel about the early 70s aesthetic, you know, kind of like the brown, very earthy, very crochet-y, very peasant blouse kind of look? Uh, I like it fine. Uh, I think it, you know, it kind of looks dated kind of as one would, would expect, but I don't, I don't think I have really strong feelings either way. So, um, a lot of people really don't like that look. I don't actually, I don't know. Well, we'll say it's maybe 50 feet, 50, 50 people are divided, but, um, something that was interesting that the hat maker said on that podcast was how, when the resurgence in handicrafts came in the late sixties, there was for some reason, a feeling among crafters that things that are handicraft had to look quote unquote, like they were made by hand. So that kind of meant that they had to look 
a little bit crappy. Like they couldn't be perfect and machine look like they had been machined. And that's kind of why the aesthetic was a little bit sloppy. But her actually, her message was that true hand craftsmanship doesn't look like that. When you make something by hand and you're really a professional, it will look gorgeous and be high quality and maybe to modernize look like it was made by a machine, but it's not. So it's actually kind of a misconception that handcrafted stuff should look, should have that early 70s kind of bedraggled look. Um, but it's still an aesthetic that people went with. So I guess to, to kind of ex- expand on these ideas of um, nature versus civilization, I wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophical implications what we see, we, you know, uh, Kelvin is our protagonist here, and he's kind of portrayed from the beginning of the film as being mostly aloof and kind of uh, not emotional. I, I suppose the um, kind of the typical, the stereotype of a, a psychologist would be appropriate in application to his character. We get to Solaris and his wife appears. And this is when we start to see him really display emotions. Um, after he shoots his first wife into space, uh, the second wife <laughs> he is quite <laughs> fond of. Um, and so we we start to see him like really develop a very intense emotional connection to her, uh, kind of to the ire of Sartorius, one of the, the other scientists stationed on on the space station uh who is is very critical and you know plays a pivotal role in uh emphasizing that hari is is somehow fabricated or fake and criticizes kelvin for developing this kind of emotional response to her and so i think his kelvin's relationship with hari or or rather with the hari of Solaris, I think is very interesting because we kind of have, we have the conflict of two ideologies that I think are, are very uh, diametrically opposed. So we have the idea of solipsism, which is essentially that you are, you know, the, the classic example is a brain in a vat, right? The, the only thing in existence is you, uh, and the entire world is kind of there for your molding. And so I think we see elements of this because Hari is very literally a manifestation of Kelvin's thoughts, right? At one point, it's kind of revealed, he admits that like he had told her that uh, the real Hari back on Earth, he had told her that he didn't love her, but that he now loves her. He loves the Solaris version of Hari. So in, in some ways she is, she is kind of imperfect as a separate human being and is made perfect by virtue of being a manifestation of himself. But on the opposite end, if we're going to interpret it in a different way, we can kind of see this as being existentialist, which is, uh, is essentially the idea that there's no inherent meaning within the universe and we are responsible with for bringing our own meaning into it. Sartorius, the other scientist who who is very angry about the idea that, you know, Hari is fake, we shouldn't treat these guests as though they're real, they're not real, it's a problem. 
and Kelvin seems to adopt this this idea that like well it doesn't it's kind of not significant right because like we are making the significance of our relationships with these people now so if they're kind of uh, organically real or not what's the difference uh so i guess i was wondering what you thought maybe of those two philosophical interpretations or or kind of more broadly like what uh, what this film is is saying about this i kept thinking about it in terms of how it portrays somebody who kind of can't let go his wife i guess she killed herself and then he finds her again and is freaked out and launches her into space and then she comes back another time and doesn't he say at some point I'm going to stay with you on the space station forever. And then she finally leaves him saying it's for our own good. I, I, I actually, cause when I was looking through your outline and writing answers to your questions, my notes on this was like, were please explain. <laughs> <laughs> I guess going along with your, with your interpretation about him, uh, simply more simply being a figure who can't, I guess who who is still reeling from a previous trauma and is using this this very odd circumstance as a, a means of of rectifying it. Uh, I guess I I I wonder if we could talk a little bit about this film in terms of being a romance film. So first off, like I selected this. Uh, and I knew it would be kind of kind of an oddball choice for the theme, but I think it it's a it's kind of an interesting contrast between the the previous three films that we've done in the sense that it, it's kind of it it it's a romance film told from a single perspective, and we kind of see a relationship from a single perspective in a very literal like not five hundred days of summer, but very literally the only person involved in this relationship is Kelvin. So everything we see of Kelvin and Hari is kind of him. Like, first off, would you consider this a romance film? And then would, I know, I know you didn't like the film, but I guess, what do you think of the, I suppose the, the approach in theory of like analyzing a romance in this way? So I guess actually kind of getting back to what you were talking about just before, when you put it that way, it kind of is, if this is really only about Kelvin himself, then it really is kind of a message of solipsism, right? Uh, I don't know if I would characterize it as a romance film per se, but I think that it does fit in our theme in the same way kind of that when we watched Divdas, that was just a different angle on romance. So the first two movies we did, uh, An Affair to Remember and Roman Holiday, which were kind of um, similar romantic comedy traditional type movies. And then Divdas was a tragedy. And they all, I guess like the first two movies kind of look at romance in its most um, kind of idealistic love at first sight kind of way. Tevdas looks at it as a, a, a tragedy. This movie also kind of looks at it as a tragedy, but in a different, from a different angle, right? Because 
this is talking about two people who've already been together. And I don't know if this is how it was intended, but I found it sweet that he kind of couldn't let go of her. But, but, you know, the whole I'll stay with, I'll stay on the station to be with you, like, oh, that's, you know, that's sweet. Well, I think you bring up really, really interesting points. Um, I guess from w- one perspective, we could also kind of see this as, as in, in some ways in an afterlife or I don't know how you would, how you would phrase it in religious terms, but kind of the idea that he like gets a second chance with his wife and then loses her again, right? Because at the end of the film, it appears that Solaris does not reform her. It reforms his father and the the country home, but she, it seems like she's never coming back um, because of their specific method of, of um, I guess, destroying her neutrino base. I wonder how, if we can't talk about this, and I, I doubt this was the intent of Tarkovsky, but I wonder if we can talk about this in terms of being a romance between a human and like an alien being and what maybe that would say about relationships between people. Yeah, I could totally get that angle because there's this not eeriness, but kind of discomfort when you see them together, like something is not quite right. But since we know she I don't think they specify. Did they say why she killed herself? She so he told the story about how they had been having arguments and that I I think something to the effect of she had vaguely threatened to do it and he left anyway and then when he returned a few days later she had. Well, kind of the way the two of them are now when she's not his real wife and that discomfort is kind of like a reflection of what their relationship actually was before she died um, because something at that time wasn't quite right either. That's a very good point that, um, that perhaps a, a lot of the discomfort isn't actually the alien nature of it, but is, is more accurate to their kind of personal history. Something that I kind of enjoyed looking at this movie was all the references to art. So maybe you noticed, I, I remember during one scene, I was like, are they, are they reading Cervantes? And they were, because then they, um, they have that little close-up of the Don Quixote that was sitting on the, on the desk. Also, in the space station, they have copies of paintings by Bruegel or Boigel, the elder. Well, the, the particular painting that they look at was uh, a Bruegel painting called Hunters in in the snow. It was a it was part of a series of paintings he did of of kind of different seasons and um, more like pastoral life in and this would have been in the fifteen hundreds and that kind of like ties back right to the comforting feelings that we had at the beginning of the movie when we were back on Earth. And then the other thing I thought about was how. Um, of all the movies that we've talked about, the movie where it seemed like both of us were like, nah, didn't do it, was uh, Ocean's Eleven, right? Um, the 1960 film. Right. And I kept thinking about how I think I would agree that that was a not good film, but how I enjoyed watching that more than I enjoyed watching this and this was I guess people would objectively say a good film even if they didn't personally enjoy it 
I mean, movies work or don't work on so many different levels because Ocean's Eleven, even though it was pretty crappy, there were things about it I could enjoy. I could enjoy the music. I could enjoy looking at the settings. And then, as I always say, it wasn't super long, so I didn't get, like, super bored. But it had enough enough redemptive qualities that appealed to me that I enjoyed watching it more than this movie. So this is kind of an odd question, but kind of as a, for instance, like I know there are certain movies that I don't like that I, I might still recommend. So recently we talked about um, the Babadook and how that is, that is just 100% not that, not my movie, but I would still recommend that people give it, give it a shot. Would you would you consider recommending this movie or just absolutely not? I guess I would recommend it if I felt like I was talking to a person who would inc- who would enjoy this kind of storytelling. Right. It wouldn't be especially because of the length. It wouldn't be a like this is totally worth your time. Everybody should see it, you know? Sure, sure. One thing I appreciate that you do, and I kind of hope, I I like to think that everything, I know I've mentioned this before, but everything has some degree of merit. Uh, and I think it's very important that we consider that when we're talking about art that we didn't engage with or that we didn't care about. Uh, it's, you know, absolutely have your feelings and, and like dislike it. I know I dislike a ton of films, uh, but I think it's really good that we kind of keep an eye towards like what, what it is that this film is trying to accomplish or accomplishing and like understanding that also within the context of our initial reactions for me personally, I love this movie. Everybody should see it. It is so wonderful. I liked it the first time I saw it, and this go around, I like really, really fell in love with it. Would highly recommend. Uh, just to mention my sources, a uh, couple articles I looked at. Uh, I looked at the the article "Learning from the Masters" filmmaker Andre Tarkovsky by Christopher Malcolm, which appeared on fstoppers.com. Uh, I also read. Uh, Data from a Century of Cinema Reveals How Movies Have Evolved by Greg Miller, which was on Wired, uh, as well as Time and the Film Aesthetics of Andrei Tarkovsky by Donato Totaro, uh, which appears in the Canadian Journal of Film Studies. And I also consulted IMDb and Wikipedia for this episode. On social media, you can reach us on Twitter at Mayday Matinee, all the other social media things at Maybe Today Matinee. If you want to send us an email, we are Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Next week, we are going to begin our animated film theme with the 1944 film, The Three Caballeros. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee.